Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dudil. Before I get started, I want to thank our sponsors up front, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. If ever we had to, many of us rediscovered the contribution of the nursing profession during the COVID epidemic. Nursing, if understood as the care of the sick, is as old as humankind. But modern hospital-based nursing and nurse training is relatively young and is generally credited to Florence Nightingale, the British woman whose work in the Crimean War catapulted her to fame in the 1850s when she managed to reduce the mortality rate of wounded soldiers from 42% to 2% in just six months. Her model for nurse training was used around the world for over a hundred years. Nursing is human kindness itself, but it is also a cultural act and even a political act. It's also a missionary act and one in which Canadian women played a particular role in China. My guest today is Sonia Greipma, a professor and former Dean of Nursing at Trinity Western University and now Vice Provost of Graduate Studies at that institution. Her new book is Nursing Shifts in Sichuan, Canadian Missions and Wartime China, 1937 to 1951. It's published by UBC Press. We reached her at her office in Langley, British Columbia. Sonia, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Witness to Yesterday. It's a pleasure to be with you. to yesterday for this episode, what happened to the West China Union University in 1943? Oh, well, 1943 was the uh, middle of the war, um, of the what's called the War of Resistance uh, against Japan in China. And it was just after Pearl Harbor and a group of academic refugees that were part of a huge migration of refugees during the Japanese occupation had arrived in Free China, which is Sichuan province, which was the only province that was not um, occupied by China at the time. And they, this small group of academic refugees arrived on the doorstep of the West China Union University and uh, became hosted by the uh, university for three years. Your book pivots around this event. It's not about the West China Union University. It's actually about the Peking Union Medical College. But as a Canadian writing this story, the event is key. What was the West China Union University? Yeah, the West China Union University was a Christian university run by four Protestant missions. It was uh, started in the late um, 1890s, the idea came up in the 1890s. It was started in 1910. It was started by Canadians. It was started by um, Omer Kilborn, 
who was, uh, he was one of the founders. He established the Faculty of Medicine. It went on to become and still exists today as a, um, as, as a well-respected university. Uh, but the, the critical part of that for me as a historian of, of Canadian missions is that um, it was an important site for uh, uh, Canadian uh, uh, medical doctors and nurses and hospitals because it worked uh, hand in glove with the uh, Canadian medical missions that came in the, the late 1890s. So it was, um, it was started in 1910. It, uh, the nursing program started, uh, you know, about that time. But, but I think what's probably most interesting to Canadians about the West China Union University is this Kilbourne family. So Omar Kelborn was, was one of the founders. He, he was married to a woman called Jenny Fowler. Uh, Jenny died of cholera um, right after they arrived in Chengdu in Sichuan in 1892. Uh, Omar Kilborn uh, remarried uh, another missionary, Canadian missionary called uh, uh, Mary Guilford in 1894. Omar Kilborn opened the first men's hospital in 1894. And Retta Guilford opened the first women's hospital in 1895. <laughs> they both started uh, the early days of nursing schools in both of those hospitals. And then their son, many years later, their son, Leslie, became the dean of medicine at the same institution. And their daughter, Cora Kilborn, became the dean of nursing. And uh, Leslie was the dean of medicine and Cora was the dean of nursing um, at about the time that the Canadians eventually left China in 1951. This is a remarkable story. The Kilborns, and I'll, I'll spell it out as K-I-L-B-O-R-N, is a, is a completely unknown story. That This family deserves a book on its own, does it not? There's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, I encourage you, Sonia, because I, I love your book, and um, I think this is a remarkable story. And I'll emphasize, this is all long before Norman Bethune, which we normally associate with Canadian medicine in China, isn't it? Yeah, Norman Bethune, you know, that's a fun part of going to China. You, you, you mentioned you're a Canadian, and, and um, Bethune is exactly who comes to mind. And, you know, he, he deserves the credit that he's received. But he was just there from, you know, you know for just under two years, 1938 to 1939. Uh, the first Canadians went in, you know, to North China in 1888. A big group of Canadian uh, physicians and nurses uh, went to, to Henan province. And this group of uh, Canadian uh, missionaries went that the Kilborns were part of, went to West China in uh, shortly after. So, you know, we had Canadian uh, physicians and nurses there for a, a period of over 60 years. And some of them were there for 50 years. There were two generations of Canadians. Uh, so the Kilborns is one example, but there were in, in uh, there, there were these multiple uh, families where missionary kids who were born in China went back to Canada, usually in Toronto, got their medical degree, nursing degree, and came back to China. So, so there was a, a this sixty-year contribution by hundreds of physicians and nurses that um, was just not known about. And Norma Bethune is the conversation that gets you there. <laughs> yes, but there's so much more before him. There was and after. Your book is about nursing. It's not so much about uh, medical teaching. It's about nursing. How do you describe the place of Canadian nursing in China, let's say, during the first half of the 20th century? 
Yeah, well, there there was no what we um, understand modern nursing um, in China before the missionaries. Now, that is not to say there were not formalized ways of caring for the sick. <laughs> That's important to know. Nursing, care of the sick didn't start, but, but a Western approach, by which I mean um, nursing in, in hospitals primarily, uh, nurses training, much the, the training that Nightingale uh, started, uh, came to China through the missionaries and uh, so the, the big distinction that uh, Canadians brought and other nurses in other parts of China, but Canadians brought to Henan province and Sichuan province was the um, idea of, of caring for strangers, you know, being responsible for the care of the sick outside of your own family. And so this was, um, that was the radical change. Medicine actually wasn't a radical change, <laughs> uh, but, but nursing, nursing was. And so they um, they uh, came originally to take care of the missionaries, and then uh, it, it, it started more quickly in West China than in North China. But uh, eventually, both places had had training schools for nursing, nursing hospitals, uh, and the hospital buildings in North China also still exist to this day, and the, and the nurses' training still exists to this day. So it brought the what what we do now in terms of uh, in, in China what nursing is understood as now was brought by missionaries. There's, I, I think it's important for our listeners to understand that China was not a peaceable kingdom in those first 50 years. It's in constant political crisis. What, what is the relationship between these missionaries and this ever-evolving political crisis? Yeah, it, that was that was very much the backdrop for Canadian missions for the entire sixty years that the Canadians were there. Uh, there were were waves of um, political uprisings um, in nineteen hundred, what we call the Boxer Rebellion, where missionaries evacuated, then they came back again. There were some other um, uh, when the the Qing Dynasty was uh, really came to an end. There was another. Um, uh, political crisis that you know Canadians and others evacuated. They came back again. Another 1927 when the the nationalists uh, were uh, you know taking over and, and setting up their headquarters in Nanjing. Again, the missionaries <laughs> big mass accidents and then things settled down. They came back again. This is under Chiang Kai Shek, just to make sure. That's right. And and so the 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 turmoil within the country as it was trying to change over from this dynastic kingdom into a republic, and then eventually into um, you know the Communist Party takeover in 1949. There were the the period that this book is about is is when then this in unstable period where Japan was trying to um, and, and was successful for many years to occupy China to become the the occupiers um, the permanent occupiers. And uh, so the, from 1937 to 1945, you know, the dropping of the atomic bomb and the, and the Pacific War ended. But then the, the Civil War continued after that between the nationalists and the, and the communists. And then eventually the, the communists came to power. Uh, at the, and so the, the entire time that missionaries were there, it was this, do we stay? Do we go? It's it's dangerous, uh, but we're here because of we we're we're here to be serving people in the middle of this uh, of, of this turmoil, and certainly for nursing to say, well, we're we're here to care for the ill and the injured. Uh, so wartime and uprisings—that's probably the time we need we're needed the most. So there's this tension all the time, and every time they left, they came back. So when they left, 
1947 in North China because that's where um, the fighting was was the worst between the nationalists and communists in 1947 and eventually in West China in 1951. Uh, the missionaries left, they came back to Canada and other parts of the world and, and really thought they'd come back again, that it would be another temporary, okay, once things settle, we'll be back. And then the, the, they, they didn't, they, they were never allowed back. But as you point out, both the West China Union University still exist and the Beijing Union Medical College, if I understand correctly, also still exists and is, in fact, quite prestigious. Yes, and, and the, the, so the Peking Union Medical College, um, as well as, I'll just mention for posterity, also the Shandong yes. Christian University, which was also, um, was similar to the West China Union University in terms of Canadian involvement, and that was in uh, Shandong province in, in the north. But the Peking Union Medical College was and remains um, an, an elite, highly respected um, medical school and nursing school in, um, in in Beijing. But do they still call it the Peking Union Medical College? Uh, in, in English, they do. Yeah. Okay. That was that interesting. Okay. So let's get back to nursing here because this is the subject of your book, and I have to say it's it's completely captivating. What was the status of nursing in those days? You draw a distinction between, of course. Chinese people looking after their sick and they're injured, but you're bringing in, you're bringing in, you, Canadian missionaries are bringing in a completely different philosophy of nursing. Um, what was the status of nursing? Are you, are you bearing witness here to a collision between two philosophies of nursing? Yeah, it, what's really fun from a nursing perspective to realize about China at that time is it was keeping pace in in the 1920s with the with um, the profession uh, the best of the profession around the world. So so for example, in 1919 is when Canada started its first baccalaureate or university based nursing education. So 1919 it was first in the Dominion, uh, and China started its first baccalaureate nursing um, you know university level education in 1921. Uh, so they were they were tracking as the profession was um, becoming internationalized more, um, uh, starting its own international associations and and it, uh, standards and involvement in the um, in the ICN and later in the World Health Organization. Those um, those foundations of uh, even public health. Uh, public health nursing was a big deal, um, and uh, was just starting in. Uh, in, in the better universities in the United States at the same time that it was starting at the Peking Union Medical College. So we had these two kinds of nursing. We had the, 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 uh, the real, um, the one that was very interested in education and higher education for nurses. And then you have the nurses, conventional nurses training that had, um, uh, that was more common in other parts of China. So, so basically what was going on in the United States and Canada was going on in, in China at the exactly the same time. A lot of this effort is, of course, driven by Canadian missionaries, but Canadian missionaries are only part of a partnership. One of the things that I've discovered as a result of your book is that most of this effort is actually funded by the Rockefeller Roth Foundation. 
Uh, how did that work? Yeah, you know what, my, my working title for this book uh, was actually The Rockefeller Effect. Mm. Um, and it, it, you know, we changed that because it, it um, <laughs> you had to get into the subtitle to realize it was about Canadian missions. Right. <laughs> but, the, but the Rockefellers is the, is the uh, critical um, uh, piece to this story because the, it was the Rockefeller Foundation that started the Peking Union Medical College. It was, it was the, you know, the Rockefellers, of course, had so much money and they were trying to think of what can we do that's going to have the biggest impact in the world. I mean, imagine being able to think like that. We have so much money. Where, what would be our biggest impact? And at that time in the early 1900s, they said, let's start a world-class medical school in Beijing. And they poured millions of dollars into that. I mean, it was it was so it, they it was going to be the um, like the Johns Hopkins, the Yale, the of 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 China, and um, the, the even the building they they situated it close to um, uh, they situated it close to the Forbidden City. They used some of the same stones and the same um, tiling on the roof, and then they figured out um, how a, a program that was going to be taught. It had to be taught in English. Uh, it had to be um, the 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 whole goal was to um, uh, educate an elite uh, group of physicians and nurses that were going to be able to lead um, China towards you know this brighter future of of um, extremely high level healthcare. But it was clearly teaching Western medicine and Western nursing. It was. There was a real interest in science in the 1920s in, in, in China. There was, uh, because the, uh, you know, scientific uh, um, approach to the pneumonic plague and, and the Manchurian plague uh, was so effective that that also sparked this, the, the Chinese were really keenly interested in, in learning modern medicine and, and scientific approaches to medicine. But is this not, I mean, let's be critical here for a moment, this is a story of intellectual imperialism, is it not? Uh, what was the attitude towards the Chinese, uh, bo both by Americans, the Rockefeller Foundation, but also by the Canadians who were hired by the Rockefellers to perform this, this work in China? What was the attitude uh, towards the Chinese, as far as you could tell? Yeah, oh, absolutely. This, it was in, intellectual imperialism is, a, is an appropriate uh, way to describe it. Uh, they, it was very clear uh, in the minds of the, the Canadians and the Americans that came to, to China that they had something that they needed, that they had to offer and that needed to change. And it was going to rescue and, and uh, help the Chinese to get rid of their, um, their practices that were, were unhelpful um, in, in the views of the Canadians and Americans. So yes, it was, but I have to say one of the things that, you, because as you know, I wrote two books before this one, those were, those two were probably had saw more of the intellectual imperialism than I, what was really interesting to me about this one is that it, you know, at the, the period of 1943 that I was writing about, um, that we started off talking about, things shifted to where it was the Chinese who were starting to influence the Canadians. So the, the, the flow shifted. It, was, it, it started off as a one-way flow. It moved towards a, a two-way flow. And then it, it, it eventually um, became the, the Chinese um, nurses having influence over the, the Canadians.
Yes, and we'll, and we'll come to that when we talk about Nye Yu Chan. But I, I want to, I mean, again, it's fascinating to read about being a Canadian nurse in China in those days. What do we really know about women like Harriet Sutherland, who you mentioned very briefly, or Carolyn Wellwood, who was there from 1906 to 1944? What did it take to be a Canadian nurse in China? Yeah, these are, so Harriet Sutherland was the uh, first Canadian nurse to go to China. She went in 1888. She went with this, uh, what they called the Honan Seven, the first group that uh, of, of Canadian missionaries anywhere, <laughs> the very first group. Um, of, so she was uh, among the first Canadian missionaries to go anywhere. We don't know much about Harriet Sutherland except that uh, when she got, what, you know, it was a three three months of travel from, um, you know, you'd have to take the train from Toronto to the to Vancouver and then a, a ship for three months to um, different ports and end up in in Shifu uh, at the time. Uh, that port, she she got as far as um, Chifu, and uh, a uh, American missionary whose wife had died. He was a widow. He married her, <laughs> Dr. Hunter Corbett, who was quite uh, quite well respected as well in in a different mission. And, and she stayed there even after he died. He died in 1920. So we, any if I want to try to find out anything about Harriet, I have to find out through um, in between the lines of Reverend Dr. Hunter Corbett. Uh, so we don't know much. We know she died in 1936. Uh, and, and then Carolyn. Carolyn, uh, she's known a little bit more because she stayed single. <laughs> so she didn't sort of disappear um, under the, the, the name of her husband and the work of her husband. She played a key role in the development of the what was called the Women's Missionary Society uh, Nursing School, the one that was started by Retta um, Kilborn. So Carolyn came as a single missionary. She... Um, was, she was there in the early 1900s. She's uh, traveling around China. She saw that there was nurses training going on in other parts of China, mostly by Americans. And but I think we should start that here. And so uh, she um, organized a nursing school and uh, graduated three nurses in 1918. And um, she she stayed. Uh, she she was going back and forth like the others with the waves of political uprising. But she stayed until uh, 1944. So we have 37 years, and yet we it, it's hard to find information about Carolyn uh, Wellwood. And it's a real shame. It's a real shame, Sonia, because uh, I think I think that there'd be a tremendous appetite to know more about these these remarkable women. But you mentioned that there's a transfer of power, and I, I want to come to this. This other person, uh, who is a constant in your story, and her name is, and I, again, my, my my pronunciation of Chinese is useless. Nie Nie Yu Chan, or she's known also as Vera Nie. Is that the proper pronunciation? Do you think? Probably um, as close as I could get. <laughs> <laughs> who was she? Who was she? And what decisions did she make? Yeah, she was she was amazing. And if you go to the PUMC the, um, today, you'll see in the nursing school, they are um, pictures of, of Vera Nye. She was very well respected. She was one of the early PUMC graduates. And what that means is in order to be accepted, because it was an elite, an elite nursing school, you had to um, uh, 
have high grades. You have to speak and write English fluently. You have to be accepted into university level studies um, it, besides nursing. So she was a she was a bright star. Get even getting into and through the program, uh, but she you know she she went on and did um, fellowships. Rockefeller, the Rockefeller Foundation. One of the remarkable things that they did is they uh, would select um, promising young Chinese women to come to some of the best schools in this in the States and even in, in the UK and Canada uh, to do postgraduate training and uh, and even get master's degrees. And and she she did that. She was one of a, a number of nurses that, that sort of made this movement between um, uh, the States and Canada and China in her education. And she was eventually invited back in the 1940s when they were looking for the first Chinese dean. When the under the nationalist government, they were trying to change the um, change from uh, um, Westerners being in charge of programs to um, Chinese uh, the Chinese being in charge of programs. Uh, she was selected as the first Chinese dean of nursing. Where her story becomes extraordinary is in, um, and she was the Dean of Nursing then during the Japanese occupation. She was the Dean of Nursing at the PUMC and was you know, on site then on the day um, after Pearl Harbor, the day of Pearl Harbor, within hours of Pearl Harbor, December 8th, 1941, um, is when the Japanese took over the Peking Union Medical College. She she was calm. <laughs> she she found a way to kind of keep these soldiers at bay. They were coming into the hospital. She said, uh, "Sorry, she's a small woman," and, and she said, "Sorry, I've got you know our, our nurses are writing their national exams like right now. Don't bug them. Don't disturb. Just wait in the halls." And then and so she and then she went around to these classrooms and says, "Yeah, there's Japanese soldiers. Sort of just ignore them. Just finish your exams." It's remarkable. It's a remarkable story. She's telling the Imperial Japanese Army to wait outside while the girls write their exams. Yes, and so they did. They hung out at the nursing stations, and then eventually, yeah. So she, they took over the hospital. She stayed to um, to try to work things out, but eventually um, she joined the millions of academic refugees that uh, that made their way to Sichuan. She's literally the one who will march the people from the Peking Union Medical College over to the Western China uh, University. She did. Yeah, she's the one. She, that's why she's so key to your book. She is. And and so by what that meant for her is she and a small group, maybe six or seven faculty members, nursing faculty members, decided, let's go to the what was the, had then become the wartime um, you know, the national headquarters of China. That's where Chiang Kai-shek had his uh, nationalist government because it was um, sort of protected from, it was not occupied. Uh, that's also where the nursing headquarters ended up. So it was a lot of uh, refugees, academic and other refugees were ending up in, in Sichuan. This was uh, a journey by foot, by train, by, you know, it was, it was through enemy territory. It took them months to get there by, um, and, and along the way, she went with her brother, her brother was killed along the way. And they, they ended up in, um, in, in Sichuan and, uh, decided 
along with the Rockefeller Foundation, they just they decided, or the China Medical Board, part of the Rockefeller Foundation that was in charge of the, the medical education, said, let's set up shop here. And they started to look around to see what, uh, out of all of the universities, because there were many universities in Sichuan, uh, where, where should we uh, try reestablishing a nursing school? Uh, because clearly we need nurses to be supporting the wartime effort. We need nurses training. We need nurses education. So where can we do this? And then they landed on uh, the West China Union University as the host that they, that they selected West China as their host. And there, therein becomes the link with Canada that uh, Vera Nie uh, connects with Canadians who had been there for 50, 60 years. Let's talk about you, Sonia, for a few minutes. Uh, uh, as you said, this is not your first book on this topic. You've also written Healing Henan, Canadian Nurses at the North China Mission, 1888 to 1947, and another book called China Interrupted, Japanese Internment and the Reshaping of a Canadian Missionary Community. What attracts you to this topic? Yeah, you know, it was a surprise to me too. I, 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 I did. You know, this is what happens with history. So I'm told, is it? It finds you. Yes. I, I, I wasn't uh, thinking about China at all when I started my PhD studies. I, I took a, a, a history of nursing course as, you know, for no real reason, except it looked interesting. And I, I knew the person um, who was teaching it was very good in this area. Uh, but it was really just doing an assignment for one of those courses that um, uh, she, the, I, we had been asked to uh, write about a Canadian nursing leader. We were given a list of leaders. I you know, put my finger through and sort of landed on Ethel Johns. Ethel Johns happened to be the editor of the Canadian Nurse Journal in the 1930s and 40s. So I thought, well, in order to write about Ethel Johns, let me start flipping through in the University of Lethbridge Library in the basement there, flipping through these Canadian nurse journals and photocopying any editorial I found by Ethel Johns. While I was flipping through, literally with my fingers, I kept coming across these letters from missionaries. And um, maybe I should back up to say that uh, uh, my desire as a as a going into nursing school was to become a missionary myself. <laughs> but what I imagined mission work to be was um, uh, working in Africa, working in in um, that's was what I that's just was my exposure to what missionaries were. I didn't have any understanding of China, so it was surprising to me when I came across well, I came across letters from missionaries in Angola, missionaries in in other parts of the world, Korea. Uh, but there were also a lot of um, letters from China. So I just, you know, photocopied all of them, set them aside, thought, well, there's a nice topic for my final paper in this one course, and then I'll go on and study what I thought I was going to study. And I sat down, there were about 11, 12 letters, and it was like entering, like the, the Canadian Nurse Journal, they were entering into the middle of a story, um, and they were talking about air raids and, and taking um, refugees in as nursing students and, and the air raids moving their patients out into safe places. And there, there were letters from nurses who were just released from prison camps. And I thought, my, what, what, what was going on here? And, and, and I started flipping through and then collecting everything that I could in, in the Canadian Nurse Journal. The stories ended abruptly in 1947. And then I was hooked. It was what, 
<laughs> what was going on. And you know how I how this whole journey started then is I I um, advertised in the United Church because um, they were mostly United Church missionaries the United Church Journal and um, with the names of the nurses from these letters and says does anybody out there know anything about any of these nurses I got eighty responses and out and out of that there were twenty four that had been saving they letters and, and photographs and things in their attics and uh, waiting for someone to come along and recognize this uh, important story needed to be put together. So that was the start of it. Yeah. Were you able to use some of those sources for your book, for this book, or is that for your other books? It becomes intertwined because they, uh, I, I had those letters that, um, because the nurses moved between West China and North China. So although my first book, my PhD dissertation, then that became my first book was, was on North China, the same nurses rotated through. So a woman called Margaret Gay ended up um, seconded to West China during the war. And uh, another woman, Clara Preston, was seconded to West China during the war. North China was closed, but if they, they could either go home or help out in the West. So I would use different parts. Um, of those resources for the different stories. So they, sh they, they showed up again in, in both places. While we're talking about sources, I mean, I, I want to ask you the, the classic Champlain Society question, which is, uh, what were your sources for this, this, this book on the, uh, the Western China uh, University? The, the funnest sources were from the uh, Rockefeller archives in New York and the, uh, and the Peking Union Medical College archives. Uh, it, it's difficult to get into those, and um, I, I happened. I was I was at the Rockefeller Archives doing some work at, at um, on a, on another project, on an earlier project, and I was invited onto a um, a book project from the China Medical Board. You know, hundredth anniversary. We ended up um, working as a group between Boston and Beijing, doing presentations in Beijing, and it was through that that um, we were working right around the, the PUMC, and I got access. To the archives then and then um, I've been able to have access uh, you know over the period of the years um, a, a few times now uh, so the, and, and the the archives in in Beijing are uh, predominantly in English because the program was taught in English and then uh, in addition to that the United Church archives in Toronto have have been um, are phenomenal and then um, there's actually some nice um, smaller um, groupings of uh, the, the University of Winnipeg has some um, uh, fawns from Janet Beaton who did some early work did a lot of work in in West China and so she collected interviews um, that she she didn't end up publishing but all of her um, her fawns are are available at the University of Manitoba and then also in um, Bedford in London there were some um, the, Bedford was one of the places that Rock, the Rockefeller Foundation sent nurses so so London New York Beijing and Toronto and Winnipeg I wonder, Sonia, how many letters of nurses writing home to Canadians exist out there in basements and attics? Uh, I, w I wonder how many, and I hope that the the word radiates out of this podcast and encourage people to <laughs> to find stuff and to send it to you, because um, I think it'd be a, a, a remarkable a remarkable story. But this leads me to the another question. What does the story of nursing tell us about society? I have to say, I, I, I'm not one that has, um, you know, put nursing history at the top of my piles. 
I, 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 I saw the title, uh, I was attracted to the title, but I did not expect to find the story that you tell so well, so engrossing. What does nursing tell us about society? Uh, well, thanks for that, Patrice. Well, you know, I, I think um, what, I, what I end up saying in my uh, introduction to nursing students in China, or, or uh, preface, I think it was, you know, even th thinking about um, COVID, <laughs> this big upheaval uh, that we're going through now, obviously historians of the future are going to be looking back at this period and find it quite fascinating that we're living through. And and, and my directive uh, to, to the future historians is if you really want to understand the, um, the, the impact uh, um, in a deeper level on the, on the ground of something like a pandemic, uh, follow the nurses. The, the nurses are, because it, it was an, uh, the, the largest employer of, of women, um, it, it, it tells a behind the scenes story because the nurses weren't in the spotlight, they were kind of telling the real story, not the, the ones, you know, it's, it's fun to read the reports and the um, and minutes, but the letters that give a richness about what, what was it really like? What were the warts? What, was, uh, what, what were the conflicts between people? Um, what, did it, what did it really feel like to be um, uh, living in West China as a, as a foreigner? And, what, and, and where were they, uh, they? They weren't afraid to put in their letters the, the ways that they maybe disagreed with what was going on with missions, the way that they were um, struggling with, with how the leadership was portraying things. So it's, I, I think, um, well, nursing history was sort of catapulted into a, into a discipline by, uh, by women's historians. They just they realize that if you really want to understand women's history, uh, boy, that's a big cache of, of, um, of sources right there is is to to follow the follow the nurses. Is, is writing about nursing history a feminist act, Sonia? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Short answer: Yes, it it, it, it is because it's um, it's bringing out the stories of those who are otherwise unseen, unheard. You know these ordinary women uh, hidden. Like I literally look between the lines of medical histories to find the the nurses. They they disappear. So uh, Elizabeth Thompson, who was a, you know sort of a main person in my second book, Elizabeth Thompson. She was Canadian born, uh, a Canadian, um, a Chinese China born Canadian. I wanted to find her, and uh, well, she disappears when she gets married because she becomes Mrs. Godfrey Gale who was a British missioner. She moves over to the British mission and she gets some. Um, so to try to find these nurses is a, um, uh, it, it is a feminist act to say uh, that there's, there's something that feels very wrong about even Norman Bethune, who we were talking about earlier said, well, have you heard of Jean Ewan? She's actually just as fascinating as him. And you literally see her in the shadows, but he wouldn't have been able to do what he did without Jean Ewan um, doing what she did. So it, it's a, it's a, um, it's revealing and uh, um, bringing attention to, uh, and, and so those of us who are women have a, uh, a way to be able to see our own experiences reflected in the past. It's also revealing women who have been erased, but who in their own time and place were remarkably powerful and influential. 
Uh, and uh, it's, it's uh, again, reading your book, I, I, I got that feeling that you, you were, in fact, uncovering something that needed to be told urgently about women who were extraordinarily brave, extraordinarily uh, smart, uh, and really accomplishing things that changed history. And whether it's, it's, it's teaching nursing, practicing nursing, or managing a nursing school, um, these are women who were, and are obviously still today, uh, remarkably influential and, and, and who make an incredible uh, contribution to society. Why, at the end of the day, Sonia, why is nursing shifts in Sichuan an important story that Canadians need to know? Well, I think about it in, you know, we're, we're in a, a, at the time I was writing it, uh, we were in this contemporary era of these exponential increases in East-West educational exchanges. We have a, a lot of um, Chinese students. We, so we're, we're in this movement between countries and um, uh, students' uh, movement, this knowledge flows. To me, Nursing Ships in Sichuan offers a, a cautionary tale about the fragility of these transnational relations. And we're seeing that now. <laughs> you know, I wrote this before the pandemic, and sure enough, you know, these, these relationships, you can't um, assume they're going to last forever. There's a fragility there. But also, to me, a testament to the resilience of educated women. It's a fascinating book, Sonia. Thank you so much for sharing your ideas and insights with me. It was nice talking to you. Thank you. Speaking with Sonia Greipma, and her new book is Nursing Shifts in Sichuan, Canadian Missions and Wartime China, 1937 to 1951. It's published by UBC Press. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners that this podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, whose annual membership makes everything we do possible. Thank you. There's a way for you, the listener, to support this podcast. Please go to champlainsociety.ca to make a quick donation. The Champlain Society is a registered charity and will provide you with a tax receipt for any donation over $20. Any support goes a long way as the Champlain Society receives no government support for its operations, which always surprises people. And don't forget to support this podcast by telling all your friends in whatever way you prefer. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded on March 23rd, 2022, when hopes are up that the pandemic is now ending. Jessica Schmidt is our producer. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.